Please turn to Mark 15. Mark 15, 16 to 32 is our text. The plan is for this message and then three more in Mark. And then we're done. Mark 15, 16 to 32. Please follow along as I read. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him also reviled him. If I asked you to help someone understand the cross, write a letter to someone about first century Roman crucifixion, the cross of Jesus Christ. If I asked you to write about that and give them, give them the information about that, you might focus on the physical aspects of crucifixion. The Bible is actually pretty silent on those aspects. We learn a lot from the physical realities of crucifixion from extra-biblical sources, historical sources. But we tend to kind of think about that the pain, the physical pain received. We know Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross. We don't understand what that would have been like, but we know what physical pain is, not to this extent, but we understand pain. And so, when we think about the cross, we often think of the physical, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if Mark was to write a letter to people, and he wanted them to understand the cross, what would he spend his time writing about? Well, here it is. Mark spends his time on the mocking. He wants the reader to know about how Jesus was incessantly mocked by everyone around him at that scene, different groups. You see it all over this passage. Verses 16 to 21 is the, the mockery of the fake king. I mean, just in the whole paragraph, the whole paragraph is full of mocking. You see it specifically in verse 20, and when they had mocked him, that's that's when they were done mocking him. The whole verses before that were the mocking of him. When they had, were done and we had, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his clothes. And then we continue down and we learn in verse 29, those who passed by 
on the highway, so to speak, where the crucifixion was taking place, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. There's mockery. And then the chief priests and scribes, so often defeated by Jesus, now appear to be the ones that defeat Jesus. They speak to each other, and verse 31 says, they mocked him to one another. And then we finish the passage, Mark finishes the passage by telling us even those next to him on the cross, verse 32, also reviled him. Mark is spending time showing you the mockery of the king. He wants you to see that, the mockery of the king. That's the title for this morning. Jesus saves his followers on this cross, and he's mocked for it. He's mocked for what he claimed to be. He's mocked for everything he stood for, he's mocked, and he's reviled for it. And the thing that I want you to see, the thing I believe Mark is trying to show you, is all the different groups of people mocking him. It was everywhere. The trial's over. Now he's going to be put on the cross. Part of this passage is the prelude to the cross, the mocking that happened before the cross. Part of this passage is the mocking that happened on the cross. Next week, Lord willing, we'll get to the death of the king on the cross. This is a passage focused on the mockery. So for our outline, let's look at the many mockers of Jesus in four points, the many mockers of Jesus. First, let's look at Jesus mocked by the soldiers, verses 16 to 26. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, Mark writes in parentheses, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. Mark wants his first century readers to know where Jesus was when he was mocked by the soldiers. He was in the palace or the governor's headquarters. Probably Herod's kind of headquarters for when he came to Jerusalem. Pilate was staying there in that area as well. That's where Pilate would have stayed. So this is where Pilate is, where Herod would be, and this is Jesus mocked in the courtyard where the Jews could see the mocking, where the Roman soldiers are actually doing the mocking. So Pilate calls together the the whole battalion, it says in verse 16. Now, what's a battalion? A battalion is one-tenth of a legion. Does that help? <laughs> What's a legion, you appropriately ask? A legion, 600, or sorry, 6,000 soldiers. This is one-tenth of that, 600. Now, the, the Greek term does allow for it to be not exactly 600. It could be, when it says whole battalion, it could have been the people in the battalion on duty at that time. It could have been 200. Either way, it's a lot of people a lot of soldiers mocking Jesus. Verse 17, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. These verses all go together. This is what they would do to Caesar appropriately so, when they thought Jesus, in their minds appropriately so, when they thought Caesar is the king, they would, they would kneel down to Caesar, they would, they would give him the royal vestments, and they would say, hail Caesar. Well, this is a mockery of that, hailing Jesus as king. Now, they don't believe Jesus is king of the Jews. They don't believe he's even king of the world. He is both. And so, again, you see the irony all throughout here. The purple cloak, purple, a color, a color for royalty. Other places say it was scarlet, purple. You can see how there are shades there that are pretty close together. It's the color of royalty. They clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. 
a crown often given to a victor in an athletic event or even a ruler of some sort, a conquering ruler, a crown of, of leaves. Here it's a crown of thorns. This is making a mockery. And we often think of, man, that would have hurt really bad, and it probably did hurt. But the focus isn't so much on the pain of it as the mocking of it. Here's a crown. And it's not a laurel wreath. It's thorns, which is so interesting biblically. Genesis 3, sin comes into the world, there's a curse. What's going to be true of the curse? It's going to make work hard, and thorns and thistles are going to be all out there as you seek to work the land. Thorns are uniquely a sign of the curse. We know at the cross, Jesus is taking the curse on Himself, if you will, and here it's pictured as a crown of thorns. The Romans weren't connecting Genesis 3 to this event, but we see it. Jesus becoming a curse on our behalf. Deuteronomy says the one hanged on a tree is cursed. They twist together a crown of thorns. They put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. This is mocking. Now, remember, he's already been scourged. He's bleeding at this time. You could maybe see certain muscles in his back. There's already spit on him. This has already happened. And here, there's all the more mocking. They put the robe on him, the bloody back. They put the crown of thorns on him, the bloody head already. They're hailing him as king of the Jews. They're striking his head with a reed, which again would not have hurt, but they're striking him with his own scepter that they've given him and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him, bowing down to this miserable, pathetic sight is what they're doing. Hundreds of them many of them laughing at the king. Spent time thinking about this passage and thinking about the, the striking of his head with the reed, the putting on the crown of thorns on his head, uh, just so much aimed at his face and his head. And this is the king of the world. This is God who left heaven because of his love for sinners. He, he, he loves the people who are torturing him, hurting him, will kill him. You think of the head of Jesus. I mean, God incarnate, God in human flesh. When would, what, what things would we think of when we think of the head or the face of Jesus? I mean, those of us who understand the Scriptures, understand what He came to do, and understand the story, know that one day that head was the head of a little baby in a manger. That head was caressed by a mother. That's this head. Taken care of, caressed. This head on a young boy who is obedient, grew up learning things as he was a human boy. Grew up learning, grew up thinking. This was the head of one who had questions and was dialoguing with Jewish leaders in the temple as he was 12 years old. This is the head of the one who Mark tells us came to earth and came to do a ministry, and we came of age to do this ministry. The Holy Spirit from heaven came and rested on top of him, on top of this head. So this is a head that heaven has anointed with the Spirit. This is the head on which you'd find the mouth that said the word, I am willing said the words, I am willing, when a leper asked him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. 
And what did the head, the mouth of Jesus say? I am willing. There's nothing like the mouth and the speech of Jesus. Lepers in that day, as you know, just despise, stay away from me. Jesus healed so many people with just a word as he was away from them. But when a leper said, if you are willing, you'll heal me, the heart of Jesus propelled the words through the mouth of Jesus, and he said, I will be clean, and he touched him. I mean, this, I'm just thinking of the head of Jesus, what we've seen. You think of the head of Jesus in Mark also when Jesus looks, the eyes of Jesus are unlike any other eyes there that have ever existed. The eyes of Jesus, when he tells his disciples, come along, it's been a busy season, come along for some rest, and then the people start following them so much for that vacation, it's interrupted, and Jesus doesn't go, oh, here they come again. Jesus looks and sees a people who need a meal, and he looks on them, the text says in Mark, with compassion because he knows they're like people with, like sheep without a shepherd. There's nothing like this head of Jesus. The things it said, the things it saw, this is God in human flesh, and look how he's being treated. There's a reason Bernard of Clairvaux wrote in the 11th century that the words that are famous to many of us in Christian history, O sacred head now wounded, it's that somber hymn I'll just read you the first verse. O sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns, thine only crown. How pale you are with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn. How does that visage, that face language, languish, which once was bright as morn? Look at all that this head has seen. And now look at what this head looks like. Bloody, spit running down, possibly running down off his chin, falling down with thorns. Despicable. Everybody today wants a Savior. They want it in a politician. They want it in a, a public policy. They want it in someone to give them financial help. They want it in a certain job. Everyone wants salvation. They want what they want. This is whom heaven sent to us, giving us what we need, and this is what mankind did to Jesus. Verse 20, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This would grab the first century reader's attention because normally you marched with your cross naked through the streets. They put his own clothes on him, maybe because of the time, the Passover. Maybe this is a nod and allowance to the Jewish authorities to not have this one naked going through the streets. Look how many people are here celebrating God and who we are as His people. Let's keep Him clothed, please. The Romans didn't normally clothe people, but for some reason they clothe Him here. He will die on the cross naked, but here He's clothed as He marches to His death. And verses 16 to 32, as I've told you, give you the mockery of Jesus. But then here in verse 21, there's like a parenthesis. There's something a little different about verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. It's almost like we, the 21st century readers, are kind of on, on the outside of an inside, some inside knowledge here. 
Mark writes to his first century readers and says, you know, the father of Alexander and Rufus. We don't know Alexander and Rufus, but evidently they did. So Mark is showing the first century audience and us that there was a man that was compelled, and the Romans could do this. They could grab anyone out of the crowd for some sort of military action that they needed help with. Well, here they, they conscript a, a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. This could have meant that he lived outside of the country and was just coming in for the day for, to buy something. Most likely, he's coming from the country into the city because he's a Jew and it's Passover time. We don't know much about Simon of Cyrene. We just know where he's from and that he was living in the country. He's from North Africa. And he's here in Jerusalem during this time, coming in from the country. And Mark wants the early church in Rome to know who this man is because he's the dad of Alexander and Rufus. What's interesting is Paul writes in Romans 16 to greet Rufus. So Rufus was evidently a believer in the Roman church most likely that that's the man in the Roman church whose dad carried the cross of Jesus. We don't know for sure, but most likely. And it's interesting. Here it's almost like, why would Mark put that in there? It just is a nod to his readers. Hey, you know whose dad that was that carried his cross? I think there's more to it here. I'll get to a little bit of that in a moment. But in Mark 8, 34 to 35, Jesus said, earlier in Mark, Mark wanted us to understand these words. He said, if anyone would come after me, Jesus talking to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's literally what's happening here. Someone's taking up the cross of Christ as if it's their own, and they're following Jesus to his death. Jesus continued in Mark 8, verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If you suffer with Jesus, you're going to be saved. If you try to get your own salvation here in this life, you will suffer. So, I believe Mark is reminding us of something he's been showing us all throughout this gospel. If you want to follow Jesus, it means suffering. Mark's writing a message about the suffering servant. And the message that we don't like that's associated with that is, and his suffering disciples. And here we learn of a man who took up the cross of Christ and followed him. Brothers and sisters, we are called to suffer with our king. We've got it pretty good in 21st century America as Christians. But it might not always be that way, and it's a little harder than it might have been 15 years ago. Well, let's remind you, we are called to suffer with Jesus. We still suffer. Our victory has been purchased. We just haven't fully realized it yet. He went to the cross and then received His glory. We bear our crosses, whatever they may be, and then receive glory. You know what it's like to suffer as a Christian. Verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha. So now Jesus is where he's going to die, the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull in Latin, Calvary. Golgotha, the place of the skull. And we don't know exactly why. We can't be sure it's called the place of the skull. Maybe it's because it's the place of death. And maybe it's because there was a large rock formation that looked like a skull. Either of the two, it's called the place of the skull. It's where 
It's where crucifixions would take place. It's right outside the old city walls. In verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, this was often given to people to help dull the pain, but Luke 23, 36 says that when the soldiers offered him the wine, they were mocking him. So I don't believe it's simply a dulling of the pain. That There's something like Caesar, king of the world, you should drink the finest of wines. And they mix this wine with myrrh and offer it to him. So yes, it could have been to dull the pain, but certainly here in Mark's flow of thought and also based on what Luke specifically says, there's mockery in this too. Jesus didn't take it. If it was going to dull the pain, he refused it. And like the false accusations levied against him that we saw last week, he has no response to them. The mocking wine given to him, no response to it. Verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. So you know his garments are no longer on him. He's a public, ridiculous spectacle. They would have thought, what a humorous situation claiming to be king of the Jews, and look at him now. They crucified him. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you've heard historical accounts of crucifixion. I don't need to go into all of them for you. We've done that a number of times in this church based on different passages. But I will just remind you, he's already bleeding. Crucifixion itself wasn't a bloody enterprise, but what would have happened before that was rather bloody. He's already bleeding Many would die of exposure. Some would die in just a few hours. It largely depended on the beating that they received beforehand. Some would die two to three days later. And I'm not trying to be graphic just to be graphic, but this is what our Lord went through. And you need to know the idea of it. Cicero called it the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. He's not using hyperbole either the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. Josephus says it's the most miserable of deaths. Bleeding, often dying by exposure. Exposure. Some died through sheer exhaustion. Some died through asphyxiation, not able to breathe anymore as their bodies hunched down. Bugs coming into the open wounds for a period of hours or days. Animals coming at night and eating the flesh off even of people who were still alive. This is God who created the world, and this is what He's going through. And it's, He's not going through this because he, he just lost. He's going through this very intentionally because of His love for sinners. They divided His garments. Again, prophecy, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. They had some sort of gambling system for what he was wearing. Again, we read Isaiah 53 earlier in the, in the service. We could have read Psalm 22, and you line up Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and all the connection points to the cross. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one. Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. Mark tells us it's 9 a.m. Mark and John use different timing that was common in that day, different groups of people, Romans, Jews, using different timing. It's 9 a.m., according to Mark, when they crucified him. Verse 26, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. 
Again, you put all four gospel accounts. The full inscription says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Mark just simply, once you understand, it's said on there, he was the King of the Jews. Again, mockery, but ironically, true. So Jesus is mocked by the soldiers. The Romans, the Romans often mocked people. People in the Roman Empire mocked people in times like this. They were all about public humiliation. In fact, as they ruled part of Egypt as well, a few years after Jesus died, there was actually a, a mocking that was similar to this. It just kind of gives you some insight into what the Romans were like. So these Egyptians under Roman rule are there in Egypt, and Herod Agrippa came to Egypt. This was in 38 AD, just a number of years, a few short years later after Jesus died. I just want you to see kind of how, how the mocking was prevalent at this time. Uh, Jewish ruler Herod Agrippa came to Egypt and he was hosted there by the governor of this area in the name of Rome. And this governor did not think highly of Herod Agrippa. And so this governor set up a spectacle in a gymnasium there in Egypt. This spectacle, and they got a bunch of soldiers there, and they chose a mentally ill, probably mentally handicapped Jewish man to go up on the stage that they had built this platform. And they did what was done to Jesus here. Handicapped man, they hit and struck and bowed down to him and said, Hail, King of Israel. Philo, the Jewish historian, was so incensed by this that he publicly criticized the governor for not putting a stop to this mockery. These people were horrible in how they treated others. They would treat a handicapped man like this and they would treat the king of the world like this. So Mark is showing us that Jesus suffered at the hands of mockers. Let's notice, secondly, how this happened. Jesus is mocked by the passers-by, verses 27 to 30. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. We'll get to them later. But Mark wants us to know they got there to the site, and he's crucified with two other men, robbers, as I told you before, most likely associates with Barabbas, most likely insurrectionists, which is what the Jews wanted the Romans to think Jesus was, an insurrectionist. He wasn't an insurrectionist, <coughs> but he is numbered with the transgressors, of course, because Hebrews 50, or, sorry, Isaiah 53, 12 says that he will be. He's numbered with the transgressors. In verse 29, notice this, and those who passed by derided him. So first, we looked at 11 verses of the Roman soldiers mocking him, deriding him. Now, those who just passed by the cross are making fun of him. And those who passed by derided him. They attacked his reputation and his name. Passed by, they derided him, wagging their heads. That's, that's that type of mockery wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it three days, in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Again, he didn't literally say he's going to destroy the physical temple and rebuild it in three days. He was talking of the temple of his body, but word had spread that that's what he meant, and they're saying, do that now. Do it now. It's mockery. There's a reason these people are saying that to him. This is a public execution. Right now, in the few places that public execution in America still happens, death penalty cases, you can't go in and watch that. It's cruel and unusual. You don't want to see that. We, we're sanitized from that. 
thankfully. But there's, there's a reason the Romans did this publicly. They wanted everyone to see and be afraid. Hey, you, you try to come after Rome, you try to lead an insurrection, look what's going to happen. You're going to be naked on a cross in view of everyone else after having suffered a beating. And we're going to put a sign that says that you're guilty above you, and everyone's going to know this. They didn't do this in a corner. They did this by a highway, a main thoroughfare. As I told you before, hundreds of thousands of people would be in Jerusalem during this time on this day. A lot of people would have seen Jesus on the cross. I mean, if it was in our day and age, he, he's right there at the junction of 89 and 69 and Sheldon and Gurley, where all that takes place. That's where this would have happened, so everyone could see. Quintilian, Roman, comments on this. He says, whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. For penalties related not so much to retribution as to their exemplary effect. We're not just trying to get at the person who led an insurrection or the person who committed murder. We're trying, it's, it's more about the spectacle of it all, is what he's saying. So the mockers are not just the Roman soldiers, it's also those passing by, which would have included the Jews as well, mocked by Gentiles, mocked by Jews. Jesus is mocked by everyone. And I do want to highlight what I told you I'd highlight before. Notice those words in verse 27, and with him they crucified two robbers, these words, one on his right, one on his left. Where have you heard that in Mark? Remember James and John? We want you to do whatever we ask of you. In your kingdom, can we sit on the right and on the left? Again, Mark is writing to show followers of Jesus, listen, you're going to suffer first and then receive the glory. His followers during that time simply wanted the glory without the suffering. So James and John, can we sit on your right on your left? Here we hear that phrase, right and left, and Jesus is suffering as a criminal. Mark 10, 37, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. This would have, again, grabbed the first century reader's attention as he or she was suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire. They were suffering persecution for following Jesus of Nazareth, who is now alive. So those people would be suffering at the hands of the Romans again. And this would unite them and remind them that you will suffer first with Him, even closely associated to Him. These people were on His right and His left. You will suffer first and then receive your glory. Being a Christian is hard. All of us know that. It's difficult. Being a Christian is suffering and then final victory. So trust in the path that Christ has for you, Christian. Trust in the path that Jesus has for you, the path that He suffered. He then went to glory. The path that He suffered is meant to be the path that you suffer, not at all to the extent He suffered, he suffered the wrath of God. You will not suffer that, but you will suffer the effects of the curse. You will suffer your, suffer your body breaking down. You will suffer broken relationships. You will suffer abuse. You will suffer mocking. 
You will suffer difficulty financially. You will suffer in every way that this world suffers. You'll suffer. Jesus knows that suffering. He experienced it to a worse degree than we ever will, and he trusted the Father and went through and received glory. That's the pattern for the believer. So Mark is not writing the most encouraging gospel in the world. In fact, it doesn't even end on a high note. We'll see that later. But he's writing to be realistic, and there is plenty that we can take comfort in. Among those things being the fact that this Jesus is now alive. He was vindicated. He was raised. He is the victor. That's our future, even though now it may be difficult. So he's mocked by the passers-by. Next, third, and these are more brief than the first couple. Third, he's mocked by the chief priests and the scribes, verses 31 to the first part of 32. Verse 31, so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another. We've heard so much about the chief priests and scribes in Mark. And again, so often they're defeated. So often they're frustrated. So often they're trying to trap Jesus and they can't quite do it. So often that happens. But then, as we've gone through these last couple chapters, these people turn him over to the Romans and they get what they want. Rome believes that they should execute him, or at least Rome's listening to the pressure from, from the Jews. They're getting what they want. The chief priests and scribes appear to have won. He's on the cross. And they mocked him, not to his face. They mocked him to one another. Chief priests and scribes elbowing each other, mocking the one on the cross, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. So many people had been physically cared for by Jesus, blind people, leprous people, lame people, people with an internal bleeding, people with a dying daughter. So many people have been rescued and saved and helped by Jesus. And these people, instead of saying, hold on a second, he's overcoming blindness, which was the sign of the Messiah. He's healing lepers Instead of doing all that and connecting those dots, they're dismissing that truth and saying, ha, he can't overcome this. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. He saved others, he can't save himself. We, again, 21st century believers, we see the irony, right? No, he saved others by not saving himself. He gave himself to save me. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the King of Israel, mockery, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. If Jesus hanging there would have wiggled his toes, taken out the spike from his ankles, come down from the cross, pick up his clothes, put them on, would they have believed? No, they wouldn't. They had already been denying his miracle power for years. No, they wouldn't. And if you're in here after having Jesus put before you for years and years and years, and having the Bible that you've read different times in your life, having heard different sermons, if you're in here and hearing all this and saying, you know what, I'll believe it if Jesus will do this for me. I've heard all that, but I'll believe it if He does this. No, you won't. You don't need another sign. 
You don't need to test Jesus. He's spoken clearly, and He's spoken graciously. He's said plenty. He's said enough. You've heard sermons about His judgment, about His grace, about the fact that you've rejected Him, but that He will forgive you. You've heard that, maybe some of you, for years and years and years. Again, you've read the Bible. You've had people come to you in His name saying, submit your life to Him, trust Him. You've heard all of that, but you still reject Him and you say, if Jesus does this, then I'll trust Him. Scripture scripture points to the fact that that's just a stony heart that doesn't want to submit, that just doesn't want to bow to the King. Another sign isn't needed. Submission is needed. I would invite you to that glorious submission. Bow the knee to the king. This king isn't dead. He wasn't defeated. He's alive. This king is Lord. That's why the New Testament goes on to say, to call him king of kings and lord of lords, often both together. He's the victor and he's the master. He's already proven himself trustworthy. He's already proven himself to be the judge. He's already proven himself to be gracious to sinners. I talked about his head earlier. His ears are ears like nobody else has ever had because his ears hear the voice of those who've rebelled against him and his ears are quick to hear them and to go and meet them and save them. His ears are quick to hear the cry of the one who cries out to him for forgiveness. This is Jesus. It doesn't get any better than him. Submit your life to him. There's no other master to have. This master went to the cross for you. This master died for you even after you've rejected him so much. This is the one to bow your knee to. He's alive. He's sovereign. And clearly his love has been demonstrated. But he will not offer salvation forever. Finally, we learn that Jesus is mocked by criminals. So many mockers. Jesus is mocked by criminals. The end of our passage, the second part of verse 32 says, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And here, Mark has taken us from the most powerful to the lowest of the low. The Roman battalion mocked him. The Jews of the day Certainly, they think we're right with God, mocked him. The chief priests and scribes, I mean, there's a formerly spiritual group right there. They were somebody in the world. They mocked him. And now, his own ilk, criminals, murderers, are mocking him. In a way, Mark's putting him lower than even the criminals, I mean, it didn't get lower than these two men, but evidently it did. Even they are mocking him. Mark doesn't tell us about the thief on the cross that was saved. We know about that elsewhere. That's not Mark's point. Mark's point is even these two were mocking him. Mocked by, the sol- mocked by the soldiers, mocked by the passers-by, mocked by the chief priests and scribes, and even these guys. Everyone was mocking him. Mark is 
showing us that Jesus died in the lowest place possible. Two people next to him on the cross. One reviled Jesus and would die. Another, we know not from Mark, we know another would revile Jesus and then defend him. Evidently, there was a change of heart. And that's our story if you're a Christian. Romans 3 says that every single person is born with the sin of the mouth. We've all sinned by speaking, all of us. We've all sinned in so many other ways too, but we've all sinned by speaking. We've mocked other people. We've gossiped. We've slandered. And while we don't think that we're mocking Jesus, we're mocking people made in the image of God. We've all rebelled against God with our mouths. Every single person, Romans 3 says. But the Christian is like that criminal who reviled Jesus but then trusted in Him. That's what we're like. You see Jesus mocked by the criminals, and at this point, I believe you can see the substitutionary death of Jesus clearly. Again, all of us, those who have sinned against God, all of us who deserve to be judged. Now, now this is a little tough to grasp if you just think of judgment as it relates to horizontal judgment and judgment as you live on this earth. You could tell me, I've never done anything wrong to be thrown in prison, and I believe you, but this world isn't the judge. The eternal judge who looks at our, our heart and thoughts and everything about us has said, you've gone astray like everyone else has. You've rebelled like everyone else has. The judge of all the earth does say all of us are guilty. So all of us deserve that cross. All of us deserve death. All of us deserve to die at the hands of a righteous and good judge. But that's the beautiful thing about Jesus. Jesus came to die for sinners so that we wouldn't be judged. Listen to Paul give praise to God in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. The death He died, He died for me. I'm not going to experience the wrath of God. I've been crucified with Christ in that sense. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I get blessing because I've been connected to Christ on the cross. Now, we, unless the Lord comes again, we will all physically die, but, but, but make sure you understand what that isn't. That's not us suffering the wrath of God. Our souls have been saved. We're reconciled to the Father. We've got heaven as our home. We are right with God. He sees us now as righteous in His Son, but these human bodies need to go away. These bodies need to go away, and that's what our death is. This shell has to go away so that we get a renewed body that matches who we are inside. So we're redeemed, but we're encased in something that's falling apart. That's what our death is. His death was suffering the wrath of God. That's not what our death is. So Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. My, my sins are paid. I deserve crucifixion. I had that with Him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, listen to these words, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul knows why Jesus died, and it's because Jesus loved him and gave himself up for Paul. 
That's the Christian message. It's a death we deserve that we will never get. It's a righteousness that we don't deserve that we do get. That's why Jesus came. And if you're here and you're struggling today in some way, and you're wondering about the goodness of God toward you, if you're not sure about the character of God toward you, the epistles after these books will point you back to his death and say, look at how he loves you. If he committed himself to you in this way, he's not going to stop. He went to the end. That's why I love John 13. He came to his own. He loved his own, and he loved them to the end. Yes, he did. And he loves you to the end. See his love for you and his commitment to you here. But we see, as we wrap up, the cruelty aimed at Jesus, the mockers. And even today, I mean, I don't know. I'm sick of news. Aren't you? I'm sick of this world. And not just because of COVID and things like that, but the way people treat each other. I mean, we can take the most extreme example and look at the Taliban and how they treat little girls. Or Christian men and women, Christian boys and girls. Look at how cruel the world is. But let's be careful. It's not just the Taliban that's cruel. Some of you have gossiped about your brothers and sisters sitting in this room, even near you, this week. Think of how cruel we still are with our words. Think of how we lie about people, ruin the reputation of others who aren't in our presence as we talk to other people. We're all mockers. We're all verbal sinners. And this is why Jesus came to die. I told you Romans 3 says we're all guilty of verbal sin and and should receive condemnation. But Romans 3 doesn't end there. Romans 3 says, but now the righteousness that God himself has has come down to heaven for you. Don't be considered anymore a verbal sinner. Consider yourself as righteous now in Jesus Christ. And how do you get that righteousness? Romans 3 says, by faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Righteousness is available. That's why Jesus came. <clears throat> so we, we go far into sin. But look at how far Jesus went in salvation. One writer says, at the cross we are shown how far men will go in sin and how far God will go for man's salvation. What a gift this heinous, despicable cross is to us. Jesus mocked by sinners so that we would be welcomed by God. Friends, he did this for you. Let's pray. Lord, you are amazing, you are resilient, you are loving, you are determined. You did that all for us, and now the Bible says that you intercede for us. You've achieved our salvation, and you're praying for us. 
Your commitment to us is crystal clear, Lord Jesus Christ. We're asking that that commitment to us would do a number of things this morning. For those who have kicked against your ways, hurt others, rejected your ways, we pray that you'd bring great conviction this morning as they see what heaven has given to them, what heaven's offered them. For any professing Christians who are in unrepentant sin today, Lord, I'm asking that you would make today the day where they say, how can I sin against this Lord? How can I keep sinning? Grant them repentance and grant them the joy that comes from repentance, knowing that there's nothing anymore between them and you. They receive salvation. For those who aren't in Christ but who've seen Him, heard of Him over and over repeatedly, pray that today would be a day where their knees would hit the floor in submission and trust. You're not just a judge. You're a loving Savior. I'm asking that they would see that clearly. For those of us who are Christians who are suffering in this world, all of us, it's to some regard, in some way, Strengthen us in that strange way, knowing that you came here and did this before us, and you guide us to victory. You give us your spirit to comfort us in the meantime, and you give us the hope of final salvation in the future. Strengthen us, fortify us by this message of you being destroyed. Strengthen us. Pray this all in your son's name, Father. Amen.